And then once I make the decision, I'm only investing in four to six companies per year. I just put all of my weight behind he or she or they to be as successful as they as they can be. I don't know if you're a fan of hip hop, but there's a term like ride or die <laughs> that like like gang members will t- will say amongst each other, which is a rough way to articulate like a, a feeling of like loyalty. I'm with you forever. But that that's the the spirit mentality that I have. You are listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur, a podcast for founders with ambitious ideas, venture capital investors, and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful, and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Welcome to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. Our guest today is Farooq Abbasi founder and general partner at Preface Ventures, a Silicon Valley-based venture capital firm investing in very early-stage startups in enterprise software innovation. Farooq, welcome to the SureShot Entrepreneur. Hey, Gopi. Thank you for having me. In this episode, Farooq and I talk about his journey into venture capital as a 19-year-old and how he came to enjoy working with entrepreneurs and what he likes about it. He shares his views on how he looks for entrepreneurs and how he becomes an early believer and what makes him develop conviction in startups at a very early stage. He gives examples of companies that he invested in and some characteristics that he sees in entrepreneurs that shows signs of success, including some pet peeves. Farooq, tell us about yourself, starting with uh, how you came into venture capital as a 19-year-old. Sure. And I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. Grew up in Chicago, youngest of four, Indian immigrant family, grateful to have found venture capital at the age of 19. Thank you to Mood Ragani, who for some reason he's now was at Kleiner, actually, sorry, was at Summit, then Kleiner, then Bond Capital at the time. Somehow, some reason took an interest in me and found me an internship at General Catalyst when I was, again, 19 years old, didn't know a thing about tech or anything. I just fell in love with this industry and I've been investing for 15 years, only job I've ever had, like my motivations and what I what do I enjoy enjoy doing. Love entrepreneurship. I love technical technical folks and technical problems. And I am an optimist by nature. And I do believe that technology is a tool, but it's a tool that can be utilized for social good, for better inclusiveness, better collaboration, better trust between people. And yeah, I'm uh, living my dream every single day. Yeah, you mentioned optimism. I resonate with that because it feels like we use pretty much similar kind of skills as any other career or any other function like legal or others. But we use all of those things to map out what can be possible in the future versus what can go wrong. So I like the tinge of optimism that we have every day in our lives as venture capital investors. How did you get into venture capital? Like what was the, you mentioned that the age of 19, that was the first job you had, but what was exciting about it? How did you yeah. decide that well, this is what I want to do? Well, well even before then, like, like what you just sort of said about optimism, I know you're like this too. It resonated with me because an, being optimistic is difficult. <laughs> it's difficult. It shows a level of vulnerability. You have to believe and you have to try, but then it's also the acceptance of a set of possibilities that you don't know what will happen. You know, pessimists and people who think they know, like they're certain or very certain that something will go wrong. Optimists tend to find are they're open to the possibilities of things going right in many ways. 
And I know it's just, it's, it's an important attitude that I try to cultivate and use every single day. So how, how I got into venture, yeah, I mentioned an Indian immigrant family. Most, I think I have 44 first cousins who are physicians. Um, grateful that in my immediate family, my older sister, she dropped out of college and she started a company uh, with her now husband and moved out of the country and did something a little bit wild. I mentioned her story because um, her and I are very close. And uh, after she took uh, a company public, which is a really wonderful story, I think she had a chip on her shoulder and still wanted to get a degree for my parents and maybe for herself. And she went to Stanford for business school. I sat in in one of her classes. And I even remember the class. I think it's called touch that people refer to it at Stanford as like touchy feely about like leadership and soft skills. And I actually was, I don't know, maybe foolish or enthusiastic or optimistic enough to, to like ask questions and to be treated as a peer while in class with these genius Stanford graduates while I was just 19. And yes, someone there just took an interest in me. And I'm really grateful to, to Mood for showing me an industry that's changed my life and makes me happy every single day. So that was my first internship. And I just basically straight out of college, I worked at a VC fund, kind of just showed up and said, hey, give me work. I'll do anything. I help portfolio companies. Initially, I helped various investment teams in healthcare and enterprise and cybersecurity. And I just kind of found my niche in uh, being the first check in the XVP's engineering and product to build something at a big company like a Netflix and Oracle or IBM. And when they spin out, I support them in the ways that they should be supported. I've been doing that for all of my career now with uh, Preface 2. Besides optimism, what do you like the most about being a VC? Oh, it's such a delight to be able to learn and the barrier to learning is not that high. <laughs> People want to have conversations. Idea flow is pretty free. And it's just wonderful that I can you know, talk to a founder, even just in an hour conversation, understand his or her motivations for what they want to do and why. From a personal level, the connections that you make are just so special. They're almost like familial you can ask people about like how they grew up and why they're building this business and did someone not believe in them. Did they parents not love them or love them too much? Was there kind of like a underdog mentality and their boss didn't like them? Or did they feel like they had customer empathy and they wanted to just um, solve this thing? If they didn't solve it, they'd go crazy. It's fun to have that kind of personal familial connection with a bright person, but also just to be a student of, of markets and be able to ask a founder and say like, hey, like, okay, interesting. You believe that multi-cloud developer security compliance is the way. Why haven't you gone and tried, I don't know, container security instead? Or why haven't you uh, thought about identity and access management as another cut to that to solve the security problem? And it's a healthy kind of Socratic debate around what technical solution can solve a problem that matters. I just can't think of any other industry. I can't think of any other industry or any other job that enables you to have that level of personal connection, connectivity, and low barriers to learning, and then eventually helping people. What a dream. I mean, I'm sure you remember Gopi, like the first person that believed in you and your career. Like I live that almost every single day where I find these founders, and I'm sure you have the same feeling where you get to be an early believer in someone. It's, it's just so delightful. Yeah, being an early believer, it's an honor to have the opportunity to support a founder and believe in them before the rest of the world does. And we get the chance to see them, hear the story. And like you mentioned, in this profession, 
we get to see the whole person. They we get to hear about their families. We get to hear about their passions and their hobbies, their visions, their dream for the future, their fears, and why they do what they do, and of course uh, the business uh, aspects also. What kind of companies do you invest in? So there's an archetype in Silicon Valley of founders like Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and. What's tough is like these folks were young. Some of them were dropouts. They came from a certain background. There's an archetype of founder. So you ask what kind of company, but I usually start with the founder. I love to work with people who are capable. It does not matter if they are male, female, immigrant, not immigrant, young, old, but capable. And what I tend to find are the most capable people and founders that fit with me are VPs of product and VPs of engineering who solve a problem internally at a big company. And that could be in software development, automation, cybersecurity, and being in the Silicon Valley, it's such a dream because you have so much of this enterprise infrastructure innovation all around us. And these individuals, he or she, or they, eventually they want to like leave because they, are, they realize and they have figured out that the solution that they have solved internally at a big company in these markets, in enterprise infrastructure, the critical stuff that everyone needs, they're not the only ones that feel this pain. They talk to their peers, their peers feel this pain too. And then eventually they're like, well, I'm going to do this. That's the kind of founder that I tend to work in. In terms of like sectors, there's probably four areas in which the founders that I back tend to work in. The, it, there's a tension, of course, between cybersecurity and software development automation. I would say, you know, those are two separate things, but I think they often overlap, but also like healthcare and financial services infrastructure. So B2B is my flavor. I have no problem backing founders who want to sell to Fortune 100 companies, top-down enterprise sales, not so repeatable, doesn't need to be bottoms up and free and like de delighting users immediately. Happy to be there at the very beginning to iterate and kind of find the most valuable aspects of the solution and leverage it. What do you ask them when you first meet them? Can you give an example of a conversation you had with a founder? I usually start... Just immediately, obviously, you'll introduce yourself. They'll introduce themselves. Usually what I want to like learn in their background is some kind of continuous trajectory towards what they're doing right now. Is there a reason? Is there a compelling reason to why, of all the things in the world, that he or she would be drawn towards like entrepreneurship? So I want to know the, the why. And then second, I ask about like grit. I, I infer grit and I will ask founders, what would make them stop working in this company even early, like even early in our conversation before we know each other that well, I, I want to just better understand kind of the commitment to the problem and like what got them there. Where a lot of the conversations tend to go, particularly in enterprise infrastructure, is that the actual product is the technical approach or the contentious belief or technology that they are advocating. Can it work? Can it work? And like, why? Why can it work? And why can't it work? And what, what, what do naysayers say? Having that honest debate about the solution and the state of the industry. If there's a strong opinions weekly held and you have an interesting kind of conversation with someone, usually what's wonderful is that your conversation brings you forward, brings me forward and brings them forward too. And that's just a good first step in a productive kind of venture capitalist and founder relationship. Yeah, let's take the example of one such company. And can you kind of describe how did you meet the entrepreneur? What was the context? What happened in the first one or two meetings? I was the first investor in a company called Redlock. So Redlock, two founders, Gaurav, and they were... So Varun was one of the original architects of the Force.com platform. 
and just to give a little bit, little bit of story for him and the genesis of the company, he saw his end customers having multi-cloud problems even seven or eight years ago, which was contentious, right? Even seven or eight years ago, everyone thought everyone was going to centralize in Amazon. And so it was interesting is when we had, when we had that conversation, like I wanted to hear why he thought multi-cloud was a thing. I believed him. But I just asked it in kind of like an immature way in some ways. So, anyway, so after he left Salesforce, he built the Casby business for a scale of you know, 15 million in ARR as head of product and head of field sales. So like great, like really, really great. And he was a founder of the company. Really great kind of personal background. And again, the same themes kept on hitting him, which was around like his customers were using multi-cloud. And there needed to be even a more in-depth layer of providing security around network configuration and even some visibility into kind of container security. And so I met him. How did I meet him? There was a secret enterprise conference <laughs> that has, that I, I, I promise oh, it, is, it doesn't have, it doesn't have a name. That. Yeah, exactly. It actually doesn't even happen anymore, but it was at, it was like some, somewhere is in Santa Clara and I kid you not, we just like, we just went to have a drink together. Like, well, we walked to the, bar. it wasn't, I wouldn't say it's a, it wasn't a bar, but like, cause it was still like 1, 1 PM, but we were like going to get like water at the same time. And I met him and I'm like, Oh, like interesting. Like that's what you've done before. Like, why are you here? Et cetera. But we just hit it off. We spoke two weeks later or about like the topics that we're sort of discussing. I just loved, I loved him. I thought he was an incredible leader, technical, commercial, asked great questions, was a good listener, solicited feedback. And fast forward, him and Gaurav built a company in three years, sold it to Palo Alto Networks for a healthy, healthy six figures. Didn't raise that much money. I'm just really, really, really happy with with how things have worked out. What are some things that entrepreneurs like them, like Varun and Gaurav, what do they do to make it easy for you to get to know them, uh, get to know their business? Good question. I think being open to answering difficult questions because realize that the VC desire is not to like poke poke holes in your business and to appear more intelligent or more discerning. And I think those types of, those types of folks do exist in the world, but the best venture capitalists, I think, ask questions to bring both people forward to a shared common goal, shared understanding, illuminating risks around their companies in a way that's not being attacked or requires the entrepreneur to be defensive. And if the entrepreneur drops the walls and just decides to not be defensive and be open and say, hey, I'm actually not sure about this, but here's my hypothesis. Or, look, I do know about this competitor. I know it's doing well. And honestly, here's my perspective, but there's some pieces about the company I don't know, and I'd really love your help and understanding why they do X or Y things so well. So vulnerability. Vulnerability is the short answer. Yeah, being open about where they are in the in the journey of building the business, asking for help, and showing what are some areas that they want to focus on, some challenges uh, makes it easy for you as an investor to really understand the business instead of a polished sales story about these are all fantastic things. I think that's what I hear, right? Yeah, exactly. How many companies do you invest in typically, and how long does it take? from start to finish when you first meet the founder and to the point where you decide to make an investment? I, I don't want to say my favorite, but what uh, very healthy founder VC relationships that I'm in, sometimes many months, sometimes years before getting to know. But to be honest, there have been times you know, this year where I've gotten so excited about the founder and a market and having a prepared mind about it, that I'll have a conversation with the founder and probably get to a decision in five, seven days. 
obviously not meeting in person these days. And like, what do I do with those five to seven days? Usually a series of two phone calls, maybe three, a little bit of referencing, and I'll introduce the founder to customers and I'll listen in on the customer call and get to like a common belief of what's possible and the optimistic upside. And then once I make the decision, I'm only investing in four to six companies per year. I just put all of my weight behind he or she or they to be as successful as they as they can be. I don't know if you're a fan of hip hop, but there's a term ride or die <laughs> that like gang members will, t- will say amongst each other, which is a rough way to articulate like a, a feeling of loyalty. I'm with you forever. But that, that's the, the spirit mentality that I have. Do you form that conviction of ride or die by the end of a few conversations by the fifth or sixth day? Oh, and to be honest, and I, I, I wish people would be more honest and more open about this. I, I'll have, because I know what I focus on, which is enterprise infrastructure, and I talk to VPs of engineering like once a week or twice a week from different companies, I kind of know what I'm looking for. I don't want to say I'm omniscient, but I know what I'm looking for. And even before the fifth or sixth day, in fact, sometimes I get off of a call with a founder and it's so energizing and, and I'm so jazzed about it that I might even know that I have a desire to invest. Not that I will invest, but I have a desire to invest in at the end of the first conversation, or maybe the second conversation. But desire doesn't mean action, right? So that I have the desire, I'm like, okay, got it. Like, I want to invest, but in order to invest in an honorable, ethical, intelligent way, which will drive good returns to the endowments and nonprofits and people who entrust money to me, I need to do good work, uh, good work. And so what I want to know is that, is there enough evidence? And can I can I uncover enough about the business and the market and the upside case and the downside case to feel comfortable with the risks and the core risks and to graduate that desire to investing. Yeah. And then I'm so happy that I know what I'm looking for and that I'm, I'm a specialist and I know you're a specialist too. It's just easier. You're also a better partner for founders. Now, I think the way you describe it, it's like a process of falling in love with the business. Uh, it's a gradual process, but there's always a moment where you flip from zero to one and then the journey continues. You get more and more involved with the company. And at some point, investment discussions also start. So what's your advice to founders raising money? Uh, what's the right amount of money to raise? How much is too much or how much is too little? Sure. The short answer is it depends. <laughs> it depends, certainly. But I tend to believe that after after a founder um, has spent the money, and let's say 18 months runway or 20 months runway, there's usually like two or three things that they need to accomplish. I would say at the seed stage, it's like, do they have an ability to hire and attract and retain talent and good talent? Is there evidence that the product marketing function is mature? So if you think about even the workflow for like the next sort of follow on financing rounds, what do Series A investors do is they'll introduce you to a bunch of CISOs and CIOs, et cetera. The product and the kind of customer discovery that has happened before that should inform like a very articulate uh, narrative of what the company is. And so again, it's like, and realize the first two things I mentioned are qualitative, right? It's very easy to say, oh, be at X million in ARR, this, that, whatever. If you look at the data, there's there's no correlation between ARR and like good seed rounds, whatever that means. So mature product marketing function, hiring well. And I do believe that if there's, this is the quantitative part at the end of the seed financing round. If there is a statistically significant number of customers who are using it and getting value out of it, and there's a willingness to pay, and what is statistically significant in enterprise? 
more than one. <laughs> I've actually statistically significant than anything is more than one. But l- l- let's say three, let's say two, let's say a handful of POCs. And there's been two-ish conversions to larger scale customer contracts and uh, a really healthy pipeline. That's enough these days. But as a result of that, does one need to raise five million off the gate for a seed financing round? Unfortunately, if they need an extension, it has to be done at the same price because the price was too high from the get go. That's not what you want. Work backwards from those like two or three kind of core goals, at least enterprise infrastructure and software, and then we should be good. Yeah. What do you think, Kobe? Yeah. In the past, before COVID and everything, it was possible for companies to raise a little bit and stay out for like nine months. If they have nine month runway, there's a possibility to raise another round of funding and I could help them. I had the confidence that I could. But now I think it's getting to a point where it helps to be more conservative and raise for 18 months of runway, raise a little more so you can forget about fundraising for a period of time. I don't have the confidence that I can just push through and try to help them with fundraising easily unless they have some strong metrics. So to achieve those metrics, they need to put some distance between the current round of funding and the next round of funding and put their focus on the business. So that's what I have experienced in having 18 to 24 months of runway is helpful. Yep. Uh, Raising too much is also a problem, but raising too little is often the, uh, the problem that I see. Unlike in consumer, I think in enterprise, like seed extensions are super common and they're not necessarily like terrible because in like, so let's say a founder has, you know, been in business for 16 months. They're just in the cusp of their first big contract, but they might need six months. They might need six months and they might even need a month or two later because fundraising takes a little bit of time. If you choose insiders who have a little bit, just a little bit, like a little bit of sort of follow on reserve capital, that's a question every founder should ask about their VCs. Like, hey, do you invest later? It's perfectly fine. In fact, I would actually even imagine, I don't have a retrospective analysis on this, but I think it'd be really fun to do like how many like unicorns have like seed plus rounds in enterprise infrastructure. I can think of three in my head right now, which like are now like the hottest companies ever. Like they really struggled and they needed to have kind of a seed plus and it was okay because there's enough evidence to for insiders to believe. Yeah, in consumer, hard metrics matter more because that's a clear indicator of uh, where the business is going. But in enterprise, where I also invest mostly B2B companies, hard metrics don't really tell the full story. The qualitative piece on why a customer signed on or why they decided to renew or how did the company go from POC to contract, all of those conversations are important. That tells a full story about the business. So seed extensions can be uh, more easily achieved in in this space when B2B and enterprise area because the story is more than just the numbers. Is there a pet peeve you have in uh, uh, you've been in uh, venture and I've no, I've known you for uh, many many years now. I'm sure you've seen the good bad and the ugly in venture. I'm curious to see if you have any pet peeves or things that you don't like. I would say a pet peeve is like is lack of communication. I know pet peeve is supposed to be something like really specific and irky and could even be funny, but I just think it's so important. It just has to be said. So when a founder is not communicative and doesn't sort of like email or write or reflect or share like progress or at least open the aperture for others to sort of see the company to where they can help, massive, massive problem. I bet you if I did an analysis on my portfolio companies and the ones that like 
don't write updates versus the one that do write updates. It's quite a, it would be a, de- a decent correlation. I think when I'm talking to a founder initially, if they have blatant disrespect for their competitors, I think it's unnecessary. Respect your competition. Respect your competition for being out of market before you, having more capital, having a lar- larger marketing budget, but realize where their weaknesses and their, and their areas of, of vulnerability are. That's, that's something I always really enjoy just generally as when, as when people, people can respect who they're competing against and, and everyone who's not you isn't terrible. <laughs> that's true. Entrepreneurs tend to be confident and they believe in what they do, but uh, sometimes they also have to have the humility to accept that there are others who do well and it's okay uh, yeah. to share and buy with them. And these markets are really big. And like, yes, I know there's all this data around like the winner takes 80% and someone else takes 20%, et cetera. But like, you can't, like, you can't live like that way. And I, I think markets are ever, are kind of ever changing and the exact market you're in today might change tomorrow. And so, and there's so many opportunities to be successful in M&A also, which happens more often than IPOs. So be, be okay sharing the stage, so to speak. How has your uh, life changed in the past 10 months because of COVID? Oh, so, so, so much, so much. Well, I mean, like for one, I mean, I launched Preface as a sole GP and I had the first close in February 23rd. And I remember on the 24th, like that's when the markets drop precipitously. <laughs> and so it's funny, like I've been in a, a personal like whirlwind of a journey in fundraising and investing. And I've, I've invested in my own for, for many years. But having kind of a dedicated sole GP vehicle with a slightly larger check size, it's different, different from before, but it's preferable. I travel a lot uh, and I enjoy traveling. I've invested a lot in companies with remotely and remote diligence without having dinners and looking them in the eye and shaking their hands because there's other ways to get to the answer. So that actually has been pretty similar. How's my life different? Less hugs. <laughs> I guess maybe yeah. like less, yeah, less hugs, less, less opportunity for serendipitous kind of physical, like, I guess, like personal connections, because we're not sharing the same physical spaces, which is where you meet most people. But even virtual spaces, I think, are okay at, at facilitating connectivity. But it's nice to meet people <laughs> in yeah, person. I, I really miss that. I really miss the yeah. personal connections, you know, seeing the smile on the people's faces and the spark yeah. in their eyes when entrepreneurs tell the story. I miss live music. Yeah, I miss live music. I miss. I mean, again, these are all really privileged things to say, and like, I'm grateful to be comfortable and happy, and family's healthy, and all these sort of things. I just wish I look really look forward to getting back to normal, and then I'm grateful that there's there are scientists and people in the pharmaceutical industry and the healthcare industry and policy that are like working hard to to get this done. I want to switch to uh, the next part of uh, the episode where I ask you about community involvement. Is there a nonprofit organization you are passionate about? Definitely. There's one specific I'll mention, which is uh, Diversity VC. Many people know that our industry is not very diverse. A lot of Caucasian males, a lot of people who their relatives are in the industry and they, they all went to the same schools. They went to Stanford, they went to Harvard. What Diversity VC was founded in London, I was one of the founders of the organization, was to get people of different backgrounds into the industry. And so how do we do that is by analyzing everyone's sort of all these larger traditional funds, like what is their breakdown by investment partnership and then not on the investment team and investment committee vote, which is sort of harder to discern given 
the everyone's a partner these days, <laughs> which is probably difficult for founders <laughs> to, to, to discern. But, you know, male, female, socioeconomic background, education background, what they studied. And every year we, we publish a report that shows like how diverse each firm is. Secondly, we also uh, we have what's called a diversity standard where different venture capital firms will kind of go through an audit and analysis that, that we'll perform with the partner to sort of say like, hey, like you, you do the right things. And what are not all the right things, but you do some of the right things. Like, do you actually measure? <laughs> do you measure your deal flow? Do you measure how many meetings you've taken with males, females, geography, different backgrounds? Like, do you measure voting? And do you look retrospectively at like your your patterns? And so having like an analytical mindset and view on decisions and ensuring that you're at least open to analyzing how you make decisions and your own biases is really important. That's just one example of of what what could make a a more inclusive and diverse venture capital partnership that would invest in non-diverse founders wherever they are in the world. One last thing which is really fun is that we get we, we, we get interns. So we get interns from totally different walks of life to intern at like large VC funds. That's exactly how I started adventure and it changed my entire life. And so I'm so happy to say that we've actually placed like, you know, many, many tens, maybe maybe even a hundred plus interns at different venture capital firms and given people a, a taste of the industry. Yeah, my journey into venture capital industry is very similar. I was an intern at Avishkar, and I'm very grateful for having that opportunity that opened my eyes to this beautiful world of venture capital working with entrepreneurs. Well, thank you very much for all the work that you do to bring diversity into this industry. Thank you. I mean, it's it's and it's not just mine. It's a it's collaborative and uh, it's ongoing, and we're not we're definitely not done yet. And I'm excited that the, our industry is going to look really, really different in, in 10 years because it needs it. Well, this is great. This is fascinating. We've touched so many different topics all the way from where you grew up and how you got into venture and what you did at 19 years old and how the industry hooked you in. Now you're in this industry, you started your own fund. You love working with entrepreneurs and you gave many examples of stories where Uh, how to help entrepreneurs, how to choose entrepreneurs you work with as an early believer, what you look for. Uh, This is, uh, we can keep going, uh, but we have to end the episode soon. But thank you very much for coming to the show and sharing your stories and insights. Of course, happily. Uh, Thank you, Gopi. Thank you for listening to the SureShot Entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed listening to real-life stories about early believers supporting ambitious entrepreneurs. Please subscribe to the podcast and post a review. Your comments will help other entrepreneurs find this podcast. I look forward to catching you at the next episode.